Hey friends, uh, today I want to do a supplemental podcast uh, for our community, which means this podcast doesn't have anything to do with the sermon series that we're in right now. It's related to our bigger project that many of you in our community are involved in of reading through the entire Bible uh, this year together. Um, We're at the point of time where we are reading the last few chapters of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Um, And if you're there and you're doing this with us, then the first thing I just need to say is congratulations uh, to read these five long and sometimes complex books in two months is a huge accomplishment. Uh, So pat yourself on the back, savor that feeling of completing something significant. But as we wrap up this, we're at the very end of Deuteronomy. Um, I know that many, many questions have arisen in your minds over the past two months as you've read this Pentateuch. Uh, More than once I was asked, um, what does God have against yeast in bread? Right, Because there's all of these rules and regulations about eating bread at certain times. It has no yeast. Um, And I've talked with a couple of you about this. Uh, Quick answer is God doesn't really have anything against yeast. yeast. There's nothing evil about yeast. But yeast was a symbol in the ancient world because yeast is a really small ingredient that if you mix just a tiny bit of it into a big ball of dough, it'll eventually transform the entire ball of dough. Like this chemical reaction takes place and it transforms it just a tiny bit. And um, that was often a symbol of sin. Like a little bit of sin in your heart, greed or envy or pride or impurity can affect your entire body, your entire life, your entire family, your entire community. It had this corruptive nature. And so uh, yeast was just a visible reminder of this. And so every time God commanded them to, uh, especially in ceremonial um, functions, uh, to use bread without yeast, it was a reminder to keep seeking purity and wholeness in your life with God. In fact, there's other occasions where he says it's fine to use yeast. So again, there's nothing evil about yeast. Yeast was a symbol for them. But that's something cultural that if you don't understand that background, it's just you don't know why there's all these rules about yeast. So those are the kinds of questions that have come up uh, while we're reading um, the Bible together. And on one hand, I I would remind you that we are reading the whole Bible in a year. We're doing this project to get the big picture, right? So there's going to be lots of little questions like the yeast question that You're just not going to have time to track down answers for. There's just going to be lots of little strange or cultural things you're going to come across, and you just don't have time to track down answers for those things. And you have to remember it's about the bigger picture. On the other hand, there will be some big and important questions that come up from time to time, especially as we are in the Old Testament And so, um, honestly, the biggest one that I felt in these last few chapters of Deuteronomy uh, relates to that section in chapters 27, 28, 29, and 30 
about how God will curse Israel if they do not obey him. And there's this long chapter about these graphic curses of how they're going to be destroyed entirely and what's going to happen to men and women and children. And um, there's just all these curses that are pronounced on the people. If they do not obey God, here are all the horrible things God is going to do to you. And it comes across as ruthless, vindictive, um, and at times malicious, like malicious intent on God's part. And it feels so different from the Jesus we encounter in the New Testament, who we read about is gentle and humble. In his very heart. That's who he is. He's gentle and humble. So, what do we do with these two seemingly diametrically opposed accounts of what God is like? And that's what I want to talk about in this podcast today. So, um, I jotted down a few ideas this morning. Literally just jotted a few ideas down. So, uh, based on my reading and my past and some things I learned in seminary and, and things I've wrestled with over the years. Uh, so, what I'm going to share with you isn't going to be fully comprehensive. Um, I, it, it, I haven't taken a few days to sort through all of this and do a ton of research and all. Like, I just want to offer you some, you know, shooting from the hip observations of how to navigate this or think about it. And uh, my goal, again, is just to be helpful for us as we're reading through the Bible together. So what do we do, particularly with this little section in Deuteronomy? Um, There's other hints of that in the Pentateuch, and we'll see other hints of that in the rest of the Old Testament. But particularly this one section that is just so graphic, what do we do with it? So I want to point out, um, I jotted down five options, sort of five ways to interpret this or resolve the tension, if you will, that is there. So I'm going to go go through these five options, and I'll point out some of the strengths and weaknesses of, of the options as we go through them, and then I'll just offer some of my own opinions and thoughts at the end. So option one is that God gave this warning in Deuteronomy uh, directly to Moses, because that's how it's portrayed. They're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is saying like, hey, one last thing before you enter the promised land, Israel, here's this warning. If you obey God, he'll bless you in all these ways. If you don't, here's how he's going to curse you. So option one is that God gave this warning directly to Moses to pass along to the people, and God is serious about it. Like This is just the most straightforward way of reading this section of the Pentateuch. It means that God was uh, more bent on requiring obedience from Israel, and uh, there would always be the threat of consequences if they did not obey, And only when that plan failed, after many, many centuries that we're going to read about in the rest of the Old Testament, because they do start to disobey, and there are consequences, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And only after all of that did Jesus then come to offer a better way, right? 
Or um, one way sometimes it's, it's described is that perhaps God was intentionally harsh during this time of law. Like this whole period could be kind of described by this one word law. God is bent on giving them law, rules, regulations, and they have to follow them. And he is intentionally harsh during this time in order to underscore the need for grace. Kind of like God wants them to see they're never going to be able to keep all these laws and they're going to keep having to suffer all of these consequences. So eventually people will throw up their hands and say, we can't do it. And then Jesus can come and provide the grace that we need. Now, um, the problem with this way of kind of seeing all of it is obvious. (laughs) It starts to feel like God has two very different personalities right? One in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Or he has two different plans. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And there's even some language for that, right? Old covenant is kind of, and in the New Testament, new covenant. I mean, even the names we've given to these two sections of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, right? But it starts to feel like they are so different. I mean, they feel almost diametrically opposed, Why is it that God is so bent and determined on the rule of law and the consequences if you don't follow the law? And then suddenly it's like he does a 180 degree turn and it's not about that. And it's all about grace in the New Testament. It starts to get so diametrically opposite that it creates problems to reconcile these two parts of God. You start to have a God the Father in the Old Testament who's mean and vindictive and angry all the time, and God the Son who's totally different. And how are they part of the same trinity and have the same heart and the same being and the same... So you see some of the challenges here. So that's option one. God meant it. God said it. Take it seriously. Um, Option two of dealing with these passages are that the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy are for the nation as a whole and should not be applied individually. In other words, uh, we read this and we often think on the individual personal level, right? That this is how God views individuals. And so we read that section and it's like, well, if I'm obedient, then God will bless me personally. And if I'm not obedient, God is going to curse me in all of these horrible ways. Um, But we have to remember that these are statements and ideas about the nation as a whole. That perhaps God is speaking much more generally about a nation that he has called to be different and to fulfill a role in human history. And if they live differently in the way that God has called them, they will fulfill that role and God will be able to bless them and the world as a result. But if they do not, if they are not obedient then God can't bless them, right? God can't use them. They will not fulfill that role. And so this way of understanding it is realizing that this is more about the responsibility of a collective nation, not individuals. Um, Maybe later, uh, the collective nation will be represented by its individuals, its leaders, And as the leaders lead the nation, so the nation will go. And so later in the Old Testament, the leaders of the nation, particularly kings and priests, are often held more accountable. When the nation is disobedient, it's 
probably because the the kings and the priests have led them that way. And so it, and sometimes those individuals are held more accountable. But aside from that, this section of the law in Deuteronomy isn't about God's heart or posture towards individuals. It's about the nation as a whole. Um, in other words, and this might be helpful, there might be good individuals who are obedient to God, who live in Israel during a time when most of the rest of the nation is not obedient to God and not doing his will. And the nation will suffer as a result. And these good individuals living in the nation will suffer the consequences of the whole nation. But the consequences are not an indictment on the individual. And on the flip side, there might be times when the nation as a whole is obedient and is headed in the right direction and is worshiping God and is keeping his law and doing justice in the land. But that doesn't mean everybody is perfect. There might still be a few bad apples in the nation during those times. There might be some people who are really sinful, really disobedient, disregarding the law, But just because the nation as a whole is prospering and flourishing and God is blessing it because most of the nation is turning to him does not mean that he is condoning or overlooking the bad actions of individuals who are still disobedient. So this perspective or this option, if you will, would say don't take these passages as personally as they often come across when we read them. It's about God's bigger plan for the nation as a whole. Now, the strength of this option or this perspective is that this does seem to be God's heart throughout the Old Testament over and over and over. He laments the course of the nation and what the nation is doing. And the consequences are almost always talked about in corporate and national terms. So as we read the rest of the Old Testament, you will see that. And even within that, this, these consequences that the nation is facing, there are still stories that we're going to read of very brave and honest and obedient individuals who are like lights in a dark nation. Stories of Ruth and Hannah, Elijah and Josiah. All right? Uh, now, the problems with this sort of perspective or option of reading it is it still doesn't seem fair right? It doesn't seem right that there are a lot of good people who could suffer because of the choices of the masses. That the nation as a whole might have serious consequences and there's going to be a lot of good people caught up in that. It doesn't seem fair. And of course, when we read these passages, they are vivid and they do seem personal. It does talk about consequences. Men and women and children and babies will suffer. And so it's just hard to emotionally disconnect from that and say, well, it's just about the nation as a whole. That's not often satisfying. All right, let's talk about option three of how to deal with the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. Option three says, Deuteronomy is written and compiled and perhaps edited many centuries after the events it describes. And that these warning sections we're reading at the end of Deuteronomy are shaped by consequences Israel has already experienced. So let me explain this one. 
The events Deuteronomy describes, Moses sort of standing on the mountain before the people of Israel entering the promised land, probably that's about 13th century BC, 1200s BC. Some people think earlier than that, but let's take that date. In 722 BC, 500 or more years later, Assyria sweeps in and destroys the whole northern region of Israel. In 586 BC, the nation of Babylon has now become the major player on the world stage, and it sweeps in and destroys what's left of Israel in the south. And this becomes known as the exile. The nation of Israel is destroyed, and all of its leaders are taken into exile back to Babylon. And this is a catastrophic event for the history of Israel. Many scholars believe that the book of Deuteronomy was actually compiled and edited between these two events. So sometime in the 600s BC, or perhaps even after both of them in the 500s or the 400s. So if that's the case, then that would mean maybe... Uh, The core of the book of instructions came from the time of Moses, but there are sections that were edited or rewritten or reshaped, and the overall tone of the book was shaped by Israelites hundreds of years later who had already experienced these powerful nations who have come in and conquered them in these very violent and destructive ways. And so what we're reading in those sections of the curses are not actually predictions about what's going to happen. They're explanations about what have already happened. Right? That the the Israelites interpreted the Assyrian and the Babylonian victories and destruction over them as the consequences of their own idolatry in history and their own turning away from God. And so Deuteronomy is written in such a way to explain what has happened to the people. And to give them a little bit of hope that they can still turn back to God. Because after all those blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, here's how Deuteronomy 30 starts. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, that could be the exile it's talking about. And when you and your children then return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. I mean, that passage seems to be saying, if this has happened... (laughs) If you turned away from God over the course of hundreds of years and then the nation experienced all these consequences of destruction and exile and scattering, if you'll return to God after that, then God will bring you back and restore you and show compassion on you again. Now you can see why a lot of scholars think it was written in that time period or at least edited or reshaped or revised. And that's where some of this wording and language comes from. Now, I should note there are some other unique literary aspects of the book of Deuteronomy that are different from Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus and and Genesis, the other books of the Pentateuch. And so those also bolster the idea 
that Deuteronomy was compiled or edited much later than the events it describes. Um, One big weakness of this perspective is, in fact, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're probably going like, what? That feels uncomfortable. You're telling me that the book of Deuteronomy wasn't actually written by Moses. Someone didn't actually record his speech that day and then just write it down, and that's not the book of Deuteronomy? That it was hundreds and hundreds of years later that somebody wrote it? I mean, that seems disingenuous to us. We want to take it at face value. Um, It seems like that means somebody is putting words in Moses' mouth and maybe in God's mouth that God didn't actually say those things or maybe Moses didn't actually say those things. So it brings up all sorts of questions about authorship and all that kind of thing. Now, I'm going to briefly say... um, this is a huge rabbit hole we could go down and we don't really have time to talk about it, but um, it would not have been disingenuous in the ancient world. Um, A lot of books are written this way. A lot of writings are compiled and edited later. There are editorial comments often put in writings and it would have been clear to the people at that time that, that it wasn't originally written then, that it might have been based on some things that happened then. It's based on oral traditions. It's based on stories of what Moses said before they entered the promised land, but that it's shaped by later generations. That feels tough for us, but we have a more 21st century perspective of how things are written, journalistic integrity, all of those kind of things. And those are not true of how histories and writings came out of the ancient world. So let's, let's move on. Option four. Option four is that the severe consequences in Deuteronomy represent Moses's interpretation or the Israelites' interpretation of how God will act, but it doesn't really reflect God's heart or posture. So let me unpack this one. Um, we are reading, when we read scripture, we're reading writings from humans. (laughs) And so they are naturally going to represent human thoughts and interpretations of what God has told them or said to them or who God is or what God has done. We cannot escape that. There is a human element to all of these writings. Um, so we have to take that into consideration and that means at times... The writings might include more human interpretation about who God is than accurate communication about who God is. So let me give you one example. One easy place to see this is the book of Psalms, right? Many of the Psalms are prayers. Uh, A whole bunch of them are uh, prayers from somebody. You read a Psalm and it's clear the person who's praying this Psalm is being oppressed or chased or mocked or persecuted by enemies. And the prayer often includes these pleas with God to destroy or punish the enemies who are afflicting me. God, here's what's happening. Here are all the horrible things other people are doing to me. Would you destroy my enemies? And sometimes it's it's extremely graphic. I mean, there's one time where it says, take 
my enemies babies and dash their heads on the rock right these are the these are the cries of someone who is experiencing oppression and they're so mad and they have so much emotion in their heart they're they're begging god to avenge them to vindicate them now we read these prayers and the question is is that what god is really like is that what god's heart is really like is he going to answer that prayer in that way or are these prayers the emotional outbursts of someone in deep despair And is the lesson of these prayers that when we are in deep despair, we should bring those emotional outbursts and those laments to God. And God wants to hear them. Not because God will actually do to our enemies what we want him to do to our enemies, but because we need to bring those emotions to God. And then we hand it over to God and we say, God, if it was up to me, if I was God, here's what I would do to my enemies, but it's not up to me. So I have to leave it up to you. And so we have to work through these human interpretations, like in the Psalms that we see of here's what I think you should do, God, here's what I want you to do. But perhaps that's just a human begging God to pay somebody else back. That's not showing us the heart of God, right? Maybe Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30 is this way. Maybe this is Moses standing up and Moses has really strong feelings about what he thinks God is going to do if the people disobey. It's the end of his life and he's begging them to obey. And he believes if they don't obey, it's kind of like he's putting words in God's mouth. If they don't obey, here's what God's going to do. And it's more what Moses feels rather than what God is actually saying. Or it's maybe the feelings of later generations of Israelites, if this was compiled and written much later, who are reflecting on what has happened to them and believe that the reason this has happened to them is because they disobeyed and God did it all to them. But either way, it's being conveyed in much stronger human emotional language and maybe it doesn't really correspond to what was in God's heart. Now, one strength of this perspective is that it elevates Jesus as the true reflection of who God is. It makes it all the more important for why Jesus came. Jesus came to correct any false understandings about what God is like. And in fact, that's what you see Jesus doing. He's telling all of these stories and he's He's trying to challenge the Pharisees or the religious leaders to say, you think God is this way, but he's not. Let me tell you what God is really like. Let me show you what God is really like. And in fact, there's verses and passages in the Old Testament where later authors like Paul or the writer of Hebrews say, Jesus is the most true reflection of what God is really like. And it's not that the entire Old Testament is completely wrong, right? It's just that the Old Testament is giving us a misty or a blurry picture of God. It's a blurry picture of God because it's mixed with a whole bunch of human interpretations about what God is like. Now, a blurry picture of God can still be really helpful. Think about a blurry photograph that you're handed. 
you can still understand a whole lot about what the photograph is showing you, even though it's blurry. You can see if there's somebody in it. You can kind of see what they're doing. You can see the composition. You can understand what the photograph is about, even when it's blurry, but it's still blurry. (laughs) And so perhaps the Old Testament gives us a blurry picture of God that has some truth and we see the basic outlines and we're getting a picture of what God is like, but Jesus comes along and he removes the blur, if you will, right? Jesus gives us an understanding of God that is crystal clear. Now, one weakness of this whole approach is that it will start to make you question everything about the Old Testament, right? I mean, if if all of the stories we're reading in there are just interpretations of what God might be like and they're blurry, doesn't that make all of them suspect? Isn't it possible that that throughout Israel's entire history, they had wrong interpretations of God. And we start to believe we can't trust anything in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of misinformation in there, maybe even deceit. And of course, then you start asking, well, how do we know we can even trust the New Testament? Right? If the Old Testament writers could have blurred this false picture of who God is like, who's to say the writers of the gospel accounts that describe what Jesus is like didn't do the same thing? And you can see that you can start to very quickly spiral down into this massive, overwhelming sense of doubt about everything in the Bible. All right, let me give you one more option, and then I'll sort of pull some of these things together. Option five is that the book of Deuteronomy represents the structure of ancient treaty documents which elevated the importance of blessings and curses. And this was the accommodation of God in order to relate to ancient Israelites. So let me explain this real quick. Um, Scholars have recognized, and this is sort of undisputed, that the book of Deuteronomy follows a pattern of the way ancient treaties were written. Uh, Particularly, I'm going to get super scholarly here, ancient Hittite suzerain vassal treaties. So the Hittites were uh, a group of people that lived in the ancient world near Israel at that time. And we have all of these treaties. Um, The suzerain was like the king. The vassals were like his subjects. And there were treaties made between the king and and the subjects, and the treaties were all written a certain way. And when I say treaty, it's like a contract. It's like the king is saying, I will be your king, and you will be my subjects. And here are all the laws as your king that I am giving you that you have to obey. And as my subjects, you will obey all of these laws. And if you obey all of these laws that I'm giving you as my subjects, if you are loyal to me, then here are all of the ways that I will bless you as your king. Here are the ways that I will benefit and you will benefit and we will all benefit. But if you don't follow all of the laws, if you break this treaty, if you break this covenant that we are making, here are all the ways that I will curse you. 
All right, so we have all of these ancient documents that are written in this very specific way, and there's sections. It's like there's a prologue, and then there's the terms of the agreement, and then there's like who's signing the agreement, and then there's the blessings of the agreement if everybody does what they said, and then there's the curses of the agreement that always come at the end if people don't do what they say they were going to do. And you look at the book of Deuteronomy, and it follows the exact same pattern. And this section on blessing and curses is always important in these treaties because it's like, here's the consequences. Here are all the good things that will happen if we keep the treaty. Here's all the bad things that will happen if we don't. And so you get to Deuteronomy and it's a really big section. Perhaps not because God is so concerned with that, but perhaps because the people who compiled and put together the book of Deuteronomy recognized that these last things that Moses said before the people of Israel are going into the promised land were kind of like a treaty. They were a whole lot like these covenants and these contracts that were made. And so the book is intentionally structured in this way. Now, the strength of this understanding or this option or, or this data is that it explains why the blessings and curses are in there and why they have such a prominent role, right? I mean, you and I get to that section and we're like, whoa, where did this come from? Um, why is the list so long? Why are the curses so detailed? And this explains it. If you're sort of following this pattern of the way ancient treaties were written, you include a section and you get really detailed there, right? And so it's less about God's heart. God's not mean. He's not vindictive. It's more about describing how this covenant that God is making with the people is a whole lot like the ancient treaties that kings made with their subjects. And you could say from God's perspective that God knew this was the best way that Israelites would understand the relationship he was entering into. And maybe God explained it to them using the terms of ancient treaties because he knew it would connect to them. And he knew that in light of their culture and in their understanding, this was the best way he could explain what it meant for them to be his people and for him to be their God. It wasn't the perfect way. It might not be God's preferred way of describing it. And that's why it's an accommodation. It's like God is accommodating to the people on the ground. It's perhaps not the most true or authentic way that God wants to relate to the people, but in their culture and in their worldview, it was the only way that he could help them understand what he was trying to do. And God always does that. He always accommodates to us on our level because he knows he has to connect to us on our level. And even if that means that the way he connects with us results in a bit of a blurry picture of who he is, because maybe God doesn't really want to curse them in all those horrible ways, but that's the way they think. They think in terms of blessings and curses. And so God accommodates himself and he knows that eventually Jesus is going to have to make all of this way more clear, right? And you could apply this idea of accommodation to so many other things, particularly in the Old Testament, like all the rules and all of the 
uh, laws regarding sacrifices in the ancient world. Sacrifice was just a part of the ancient world. All nations did sacrifices like this. And so God knew this is the way people think. So I'm going to work within this system that they have to help people relate to me and draw close to me and bring their gifts to me and seek forgiveness and reconciliation with me. It's not because God is hungry or thirsty for the blood of animals. In fact, if you go and read Psalm 50, it makes it clear. God isn't God doesn't need our sacrifices. The ancient Israelites knew. God doesn't need our sacrifices, but perhaps God knew this was going to be the best way to relate to them in their culture at that time. And once it was no longer needed to relate to people, the sacrificial system went away. Jesus comes along and gives us a better way to understand and relate to him. There's a lot more I could say about this, but the strength obviously is um, is that there's really clear similarities between Deuteronomy and ancient treaties. So that's sort of undisputed. Um, there's a strong scholarly argument there. Um, and the idea of accommodation is important. I mean, at some level, we all agree that God has to accommodate to us humans in order to reveal to us who he is and for us to relate to him. I mean, Jesus himself is a picture of accommodation. God becoming human. Philippians 2, Paul talks about this. Taking on human flesh, becoming a servant, embracing all of the weaknesses and the restraints and the limits of what it means to be a human in order to reveal himself to us. That's accommodation. Now, the weaknesses of this perspective are how far do you go with accommodation, right? I mean, you can start to go so far that you begin to wonder if anything or if everything revealed in Scripture is accommodation, right? Is everything in Scripture not really revealing who God actually is? And for some, that starts to make everything in Scripture suspect, right? It's all accommodation. None of it actually points to who God really is. All right, let's stop there. With all that said, let me go back through the options just real quick and just share my own opinions and then wrap this thing up. Um, Option number one was taking everything at face value and just concluding, you know, Old Testament God is is an angry God and he's got really high standards. Um, And some people that sort of embrace this option then turn around and say, and who are we to question that? He's God, we're not right? We don't understand his ways. We think it's angry God. Maybe it's not, but who are we to question him? I think um, this way of understanding God and this way of understanding the Old Testament is admirable. I think it, it it's true that God is different than us, and there are times we don't understand his ways, but I also think it's just too simplistic, to just take this at face value. God said this to Moses. Moses is just relaying it to other people. And it makes God sound really vindictive and cruel because God is really vindictive and cruel. (laughs) There's so much more complexity in Scripture. There's so much more cultural context we have to understand. 
And I just don't think it's helpful to take this simplistic of a viewpoint. It's certainly not satisfying, right? It's why so many of us are questioning the Bible and leaving church. Because too many people in the past have said, well, yep, that's just how God is. Suck it up, deal with it. He's God, we're not, right? That's not helpful. That's not satisfying at all. That doesn't speak to the deepest longings of our heart to truly know what God is like. So I'm not super excited about option number one. Uh, The next four options, two, three, four, and five, I'll come back through them real quick, but I think all of them make some good points. And so I would actually conclude with some perspective that acknowledges some of the strengths and some of the points of all of the rest of the options. So option two said, right, this is more about the nation as a whole, not individuals. And I think that's really helpful. All of the covenant language in the Old Testament is about corporate national Israel. It's rarely about individuals. And when it is about individuals, it's usually because those individuals are representing the community as a whole. It's these groups of people, this nation that God calls to represent himself. And so I think it is important to remember when we read the blessings and curses and all those kind of things, he's talking about a nation as a whole, not individuals. Um, Option three said that these books were written much later. And I think there's some good arguments to suggest that at the very least, some editing or some shaping of Deuteronomy took place in the generations who were later struggling with the experience of exile. Now, how much editing or shaping is uncertain, right? And I think both extremes are dangerous. So there's some people that fiercely resist this idea and they are dogmatically holding onto the view that Moses wrote all of this down, verbatim, word for word, and to suggest that any of it was created or added later um, is just, you know, I think that's too strong of of an extreme, right? That ignores um, a lot of evidence uh, that suggests it was shaped later and it is shaped with a perspective of people wrestling with the consequences of their disobedience. There's some literary things as well that definitely point to Deuteronomy being a different kind of book from the other four books of um, the Pentateuch. So you're ignoring some evidence, um, but for other people, there's some other people that say, well, it just has nothing whatsoever to do with Moses or the, the Exodus generation or the wilderness generation. Well, that ignores some evidence as well, right? It clearly connects to Hittite treaties that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the exile, right? Um, And so it's probably somewhere in the middle. There was a core body of teaching and instruction that comes from the wilderness generation, but perhaps it's shaped later, and perhaps these blessing and curse parts are shaped by those later generations. Um, Option four points out the human element in these writings, and I think we can't ignore that. But the same thing is there. To go to either extreme is unhealthy. We can't ignore the human element and just dogmatically say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But we also 
don't throw up our hands and say, well, it's just all written by fallible humans and so we can't trust any of it, right? We just have to throw it all out. Isn't it possible that God could use fallible humans to communicate what is true about himself? And perhaps sometimes that communication is blurry because God has to accommodate but he's working towards making it more and more clear until ultimately Jesus becomes the fullness of that clarity? Isn't it possible God can do both? He can use fallible humans, and we have to take that into account, but he can also communicate truth through them? And that gets to that option five, where there is evidence that it follows these treaty patterns, and there is evidence that maybe God was accommodating to the way people thought at that time, and that seems to be how God works. It makes sense that God has to relate to us on our level in order for us to understand him, even if it means sacrificing us fully understanding him. So I don't think these last four options have to be mutually exclusive. I think they all offer some ways of helping us understand why, even though when we read these passages, they're jolting at first, there's still something important there for communicating what God was up to. So um, I want to just close and wrap up with this idea that we have to keep the big picture in mind. That's important. This is less about individuals. It's more about what God is doing in a nation in the course of history. And then there's one other thing I would add, and that's that scripture is meant to challenge us. It's meant to get us to think. There will be parts of scripture that provoke us, that make us wrestle with what it really means and what God is really like. And rather than get freaked out by that, I would suggest we need to expect that. We need to expect that when human beings are trying to write about and describe an infinite and sometimes mysterious God, there's going to be some tension There's going to be some texts that provoke us and don't provide easy answers. And in fact, by not providing easy answers, we have to seek him out more. We have to figure out what it means to trust him when we don't have the easy answers. And that's the journey of faith. And it will always carry with it the great promise of joy and delight in a mysterious and amazing God who does not conform to all of our human categories, But that means holding on to some tensions (laughs) and wrestling with the tough questions when God doesn't or pictures of God don't conform to our human categories. So I hope this hasn't been helpful. I hope you'll keep holding on to those tensions. I hope you'll keep reading because we're not done. (laughs) We will probably have to revisit some of these issues in the historical and the prophetic sections of the Old Testament. So hang in there and keep an open heart and an open mind.